from the offices of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas. Just footsteps from the White House, the heart of the nation's capital. This is 14th NG, the podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. Here's your host, C.R. Wooters. Welcome to 14th NG, the podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. This week, we're joined by Dr. Helena Gazelka. She is one of the foremost experts on pain management uh, and opioids. Um, she currently works at the Mayo Clinic, which, as most folks know, is a thought leader on most issues healthcare. And she is their point person on um, pain management. We talk about pain management, chronic pain management, acute pain management. Um, we talk about opioids. And we talk a little bit about what Congress can do. Dr. Gazelka has also been named to the pain management task force at HHS. So she is spreading her wisdom here with DC policymakers. Okay, without further ado, Dr. Gazelka. Dr. Gazelka, welcome to 14th and G. Well, thank you. Good morning. Yes. So you are an expert in pain management and opioids as part of that. Um, I'm going to go with a hard question first. What's Congress? What can Congress do uh, about this problem that is obviously a hot topic nationally and a hot topic in town? Wow, you just launch right in. Yeah, we like to keep our listeners hanging right on the edge. So I don't know the exact number, but I know there are at least 100 bills mm-hmm. before Congress being considered and everything is being bandied about from setting dose limits to how do we monitor patients to what do we do with um, the physician, uh, I mean, the the drug monitoring programs, and should we have a national drug monitoring program, et cetera, et cetera. What should we pay for? What should CMS pay for for patients? Mm -hmm. But I think some of the major things that Congress can do would be um, to improve public health. Mm -hmm. So measures that would allow us to collect better data on on what patients are taking, what they need to be taking so that we can better understand uh, what's going on with, with this crisis. Tools to improve the um, um, prescription drug monitoring programs, sure. the PDMPs or PMPs as they're, cause, as they're called. They're um, active in about 42 states, but the states decide if they're going to have a PMP sure. and they decide who can have access to it and whether other states can have access to it. I think it would be valuable for us to have a national database that could be accessed by providers uh, to understand where patients and where the flow of opioids are. Do you need uh, electronic medical records and stuff to go down that? Do you need to go down that road to, to solve this or can you solve it right at the at the distribution point? You know, I think the electronic medical record is extremely valuable um, because of the ability to share information sure. uh, for patients. And I think that links to the um, monitoring programs from within the electronic medical record are time savers. They're really valuable and they're much more likely to be used by providers than sure. when you have to log on to an internet site, which, yeah. which is what you have to do in many states, including the state of Minnesota, where mm-hmm. I practice uh, at this time. So I, I think that um, they're electronic medical records are really valuable. The other thing people always talk about is electronic prescribing. Should oh, that yeah. be should that be law? Mm-hmm. You know, I think there are pros and cons to that. I think um, uh, electronic prescribing is great. You bypass the patient's hands mm-hmm. holding the prescription and send it directly to a pharmacy where the pharmacy probably has better access 
uh, and can better collect data on whether patients have received prescriptions. Sure. Um, the prescriptions can't be altered mm -hmm. by the patient, obviously. Um, and so there are a number of benefits to that. Um, there's even been proven to be some cost benefit to that. Um, Just cutting down on paperwork and, yeah, and that yeah. kind of stuff. So, um, in quite a few ways. So, But I think other things that can be done are, are for on, in terms of providers to create standards and best practices. Congress can assist with that. Um, you know, as a physician, you always hate to say you should legislate right. the way that we practice medicine or that you should legislate something. But I think that it's been proven that there are people who are not being wise sure. with opioid management. Sure. We need education for providers. We need mm -hmm. probably required education for providers is not is not a negative. Yep. Um, of course, there are those who will argue that it's not been proven to actually change behavior, but at least it's uh, something sure. people are being yeah. asked to do. Um, to allow providers to have access to other treatments for their patients. So in other words, there are a lot of um, opioids are cheap. Sure. So it's easy for me in a 10 minute appointment to write somebody an opioid prescription and send them out of my office and do that every month. Yep. But when I want to sit with a patient and talk to them and actually get imaging studies to see why they're having pain and actually think about interventional procedures, think about physical therapy, think about um, alternative therapies, those are much more difficult to get covered. So sure. a lot of times, you know, I'll, I've, I've been in this rut before where I've told a patient, this is what I'd like to offer you, and then find out their insurance company the, won't, the, cover won't cover it. it. Right, right, and right. And that's really frustrating. Sure. So there needs to be some better access sure. to other therapies for patients if we're going to remove opioids. Because a lot of these patients, it's not the opioid crisis is not just about people taking opioids nefariously or getting them nefariously and misusing them. Sure. It's about patients with chronic pain Absolutely. who also should have other treatment options. I think for patients, uh, Congress could work on a better education tools for them and resources um, for, for patients other than um, opioids. So I think it's a many-pronged approach. Um, this is not a problem that has, is one-sided. Sure. Um, but my approach and my work at, at Mayo, because we are a provider, uh, you know, an institution where we provide care to patients, is to manage what we are putting out for patients, sure. the opioid supply, mm -hmm. to be sure that we're being responsible providers with it. That's the one area that we can really touch. Why don't you tell me about your background? I mean, I know you work at the Mayo Clinic, which is obviously world-renowned. How? What's your background and how'd you get into pain management? Oh, wow. That was a long, circuitous road a little bit. I uh, was a physician assistant before I went to medical school, and I worked in hematology and oncology, and it had always struck me that we didn't have very good pain management for our patients, and so I was really interested in that topic um, from that time. When I went to medical school, uh, I heard about anesthesiology, and I am an anesthesiologist, and uh, I love procedures. I love um anesthesia and the parts of pain management that are procedure driven, but I also love relationships with patients. Mm -hmm. And so I work in chronic pain management, uh, acute pain management, and also in palliative medicine. I feel like there's a couple pieces of this here. There's chronic pain, which is a real thing that we've got to figure our way through. And then there's the kind of acute pain. And I, I guess I'll ask you this question this way. Do you think patients are wimps? Like, do you think patients, like if you get your teeth pulled, it should hurt a little, probably. I don't think patients are wimps, but I think that we've created 
perhaps unrealistic expectations. Yeah. I think that um, we've kind of created a society, a society where we take a pill or we do something to fix things. And there's not always uh, a quick fix that is beneficial. And so I think that um, expectations can be changed. I think that um, probably we can uh, work on not only patient education and physician education regarding pain, um, but I do think we have different expectations than people do in some other different countries in the world where they don't use opioids as heavily as we do. Yeah, and you mentioned doctors and prescribing. you know, I read that, you know, Walmart and some other places are trying to figure out if there's a smaller time horizon for prescriptions. Um, Do you think, I mean, there's all of these problems are so many layers, but it feels to me like doctors prescribing too many drugs up front is also a problem too. Um, Kind of the over abundance of caution on pain. Oh, I absolutely agree with you. And I think that has something to do with expectations. And also, I think most providers want to take good care of their patients, want their patients to be happy. We live in a um, an era of Press-Ganey scores and uh, reviews, and, and patients have options. What's Press-Ganey scores? Uh, they're reviews that patients uh, can fill out okay. for the, on, on their provider, and yep. they're, they have a lot to do with reimbursement within institutions yep. and how um, how physicians and providers are perceived, sure. uh, both within their institutions and by their patients. Yep. Patients have choices. They don't have to come to you uh, as a provider. And so I think not only do we really want to keep our patients out of pain, but take good care of them, but probably um, we've gone somewhat overboard with that. I think that... Um, we know that a lot of the pills that we're giving out aren't being used by patients, and uh, that's concerning. Sure. Um, how are folks at Mayo? I mean, I always feel like Mayo is like leading edge in all these things, and obviously, like one of the gold standards of healthcare, you know, delivery in the country. Um, um, what are you guys doing on on pain specifically, op- uh, pain generally specifically in the opioid space? Yeah, well, we appreciate your positive thoughts about Mayo. <laughs> it is a great place to be. Um, we have done a couple of things. I've been working on the opioid issues at Mayo since 2016 when a lot of the headlines started um, focusing on opioid issues when there a lot of uh, attention was coming to the topic and the leadership at Mayo realized we really didn't have oversight of that issue. And so our primary challenge was to examine how we prescribe at Mayo and to see whether we are following guidelines and policies and workflows that would be appropriate for opioid prescribing. And so we've kind of looked at that, split that into two separate sections, acute prescribing, which is what we hear so much about in legislation, that we're going Mm -hmm. to give people short prescriptions. We're going to be careful how many pills we give them when they have a surgery or a trauma and go to the or go to the emergency room, sure. et cetera. And then chronic prescribing, which is patients who have chronic pain and are maintained on opioids for prolonged periods of time, often mm-hmm. for years. And so we've looked at those two issues separately, and we have uh, not only written our own guidelines, which are fairly consistent with the CDC guidelines, sure. but also we have um, set workflows in place to assist our providers. Uh, with following those guidelines. And we've also completed a number of studies um, about our prescribing, which have been really helpful in um, defining the work going forward. Sure. So can I pull that apart a little bit? So you have acute um, pain and you've got chronic pain. Um, 
you know, if you have a chronic pain problem, like you, that's a like a life-changing situation, right? If you can't walk or sit down or, you know, sit for long periods or whatever. The, I always think of a chronic pain as back pain, but it could be cancer. It could be any number of things. These are things you would obviously know better. How do you think of the two of those things differently? And is there a... Is there a different way to think through how we deal with pain management for people with chronic pain? Absolutely. So acute pain, we think of it's going to get better. Mm-hmm. So something happened to you. You were in a car accident. You broke your ankle. You had a surgery. You had your wisdom teeth out. Something is going to get better sure. in the short term. Chronic pain often comes from chronic disease states that people are managing either for a lifetime or for a number, even for a number of years. In the medical literature, we usually use 45 to 90 days to define when something becomes chronic pain. I'm not sure that's really important. I think it's more the cause of the pain and the etiology or what what is causing the person to be in pain. And the problem is that like the disease states that you mentioned are so diverse that trying to define one way to care for those patients. So someone with chronic back pain versus someone with disabling rheumatoid arthritis or neurofibromatosis or some incredibly disabling disease, it's very hard to compare. And they're sort of apples and oranges Uh and have to be approached individually. And I think that's what we try to do in our pain clinic at Mayo is not only use medications and pills, but use... um, integrative therapies, so uh, cognitive behavioral therapies, um, alternative and complementary therapies, interventional procedures that we do, um, implants, neuromodulation. There's there's a whole gamut of uh, treatments for chronic pain that are not just pills. Interesting. Uh, I'll ask you follow up on that. What's the one? What's the non-pill version of pain um, management that you are intrigued with the most these days? Wow, that's tough. I think it, like I said, it really depends on what the patient is struggling with, what type of pain they're struggling with. One of the most fun things that we do is uh, to do interventional procedures for back pain, for instance. Mm. So we do a lot of epidurals, we do a lot of injections, but we also implant um, spinal cord stimulators, uh, dorsal column stimulators for patients with chronic back pain. And to see a patient have that procedure performed and in the recovery room, have their pain improved by 50 to 80 percent is really remarkable and it's really fun it's fun technology it's um really amazing and it's completely medication free oh interesting on the other hand it is also amazing to see patients who will go to um, have cognitive behavioral therapy and work with our wellness counselors work with our pain rehabilitation center and see them learn internally to manage their pain differently sure. and far more successfully than they did with years of medication. And it's, that's really gratifying. Right. Well, I guess the, my guess is sometimes you get the, you get rid of the haze of the, of the pain medicine and your life is a little bit more vibrant and things that like that. That is really right? true. That is really true. Uh, years of pain medicine take their toll on people. Yeah. I've seen that you were named to the pain management task force at HHS. Um, congratulations for that. Um, what's the, what's the task force supposed to do what's your time frame how are you how are you working through that yeah i'm really excited about um, working on that task force i think there are about 20 to 30 of us who are on the task force uh, some of whom i know and many of whom i don't but the purpose of that task force it was established by the CARA legislation of 2016 um, the comprehensive addiction and recovery act and the purpose was to examine pain management practices and standards in the various um, 
areas of HHS and various government um, agencies. So the purpose was to examine uh, best management pain practices and um, how they're approached in the various government agencies. Yep. And that are under the auspices of HHS and to try to come to bring some recommendations to pain management, be it opioid related or not opioid related. So it's really going to be an exciting, um, exciting to get together with other experts in the field and see what they're doing and what they recommend and come up with some great, um, I think, some great principles and um, advice, I think. That's cool. I I continue to to hear you separate pain management from opioids. I think that's important because opioids, you know, probably connotates a a different thing sometimes now in the news than pain management. And pain management is, I'll just say, probably very, very real. (laughs) Opioid abuse, opioid stuff is is very real as well, but in a different kind of category. That's a little bit more like how do you deal with drug trafficking than it is pain medication Very sometimes, true. right? Yes. At least in other people's yes. brains. Um, yeah. Um, so I'm a dad. Like, what do I tell my kids about pain control? What do I tell my kids about opioids? How do I deal with my doctors when this kind of stuff comes up? Um, um, because, well, uh, <laughs> sorry. I no, I just mean like in the practical. Like, so let's go from the, we're going from how do we help HHS think very broadly about you know, pain uh, uh, and dealing with pain nationally to like, you know, how do you, de- how, what do you tell your friends? So, yeah. So I think that's a little bit like talking to your kids about sex. It depends how old they are, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> but um, I think what I tell my patients is that I truly believe that opioids are some of the most valuable medications that we have. Interesting. They have been around for thousands of years, and there is no better pain control than opioid medications when you need them. Sure. So for patients who are recovering from major surgeries, for patients with cancer-related pain, for patients at the end of life, there are no better medications. Sure. But they come with a lot of risks, and they come with a lot of side effects. And I think that... wisdom and prudency would tell us that we should use them for the most limited dose for the most limited time that we can. And so great to have pain medications, you know, when you've had a surgery, but quit them as soon as you can. When you don't need them anymore and your pain is managed with Tylenol, that's a time to stop before your body becomes dependent on them. And so I think that, uh, I don't think opioids are bad medications. I'm not anti-opioid in any way. I, I, I'm an anesthesiologist. I treat yeah. people with opioids every single <laughs> right. day. Exactly. And um, I think they're incredibly valuable. But I do think that our kids need to know the risks that come with, with using opioids. When my daughter was in high school, I remember her telling me that she got in the car one day and asked me if I knew what tramadol was. Well, tramadol is a mild opioid. Of course, I knew what it was. Yeah. My ears kind of perked up. And she said, well, mom, people are mixing that in their pot at parties to smoke it. Oh, boy. And then she went on to tell me that they have parties where the kids will bring any medicine bottles from their parents' cabinets, dump them on the table, and take whatever is there. They have no idea if it's a blood pressure medication, if it's a diabetic medication, if it's an opioid, if it's a benzodiazepine. They have no idea what they're taking. They just take it and try it. And this is in Rochester, Minnesota, population 100,000 people. Luckily, my daughter lived through this experience and is now 25 and has made me a very happy grandmother. Uh, There's no way you're a grandmother. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. Uh, But yeah, so um, those are the frightening things that go on. And I think we do have to educate um, kids. It, it feels like um, 
uh, on the simple level, it feels like we've got to educate people like we did on drunk driving years ago. Yes. And kind of, yes. you know, um, things like that. Um, that's yep. a terrifying... So my kids are little, and so that's mm-hmm. a terrifying story. So I'm just going to, like, never let them grow up. <laughs> Is that a possibility? That might be easiest. In some ways, um, Congress and Washington tend to be reactionary, right? So they see a whole bunch. They see a 60 Minutes thing that says that, that, you know, one county in West Virginia has got a gazillion pills and they want to stop that. But it feels to me like this is a much more nuanced, much more need to be much more thoughtful about how this goes forward. Yeah, I think that's one thing that I've been struck by is I've been in here in D.C. visiting um, on Capitol Hill um, with some of the um, staff um, of our Congress people is that... I'm not always sure that they fully understand what it is that we do sure. in practice. Yeah. And so I think it's important to have um, people who are in practice who actually really deal with the issues on a day-to-day basis um, contribute to the discussion. And I'm really grateful when, mm-hmm. when they've allowed that to happen. And that's why I think this HHS task force yeah. may be so important because it's um, made up of not only patient representation, but also people who actually work day to day in the clinic and manage patients. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And, you know, I don't want to offend House and Senate staffers, but they also are going from issue to issue to issue. And, you you know, you're you're the expert in this one, right? So that, that obviously is the case. I wouldn't want to have to speak to their other issues. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. So, um, we won't ask you about international trade. No, or any of those please don't. Right Okay, so I'm going to ask you two last questions. And the first is, so you say you're a mom and allegedly a grandma, although that's <laughs> still TBD, um, and a doctor, and you're here in Washington. How do you balance all that stuff? Well, um, I don't have any kids living at home anymore. That's a that's, that's a big a, part of balancing it. Do you uh, need some? Because I have a couple that I could... <laughs> I've been there and done that. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> While my kids were growing up, I um, got two college degrees Went to medical school, did a residency and two fellowships, and um, they thought all I did was study. So actually, <laughs> this is like a this is like a time in life. It feels like I have all the free time in the world. So actually, it's been uh, really great to be able to um, work on some of these issues that are exciting to me, where I feel like we'll have great impact um, and really change the lives of our patients. Um, so it's been really gratifying. That's pretty cool. Um, okay, so I always ask somebody like a, I always ask one wacky question here. Um, and if you were an animal, <laughs> yeah, what kind yeah, of animal yes, exactly. <laughs> no, the question I'm going to go with is it is up that lally though. Is if you weren't a doctor, what would you be doing? I have no idea. I remember I was nine years old at a tiny school in Akeley, Minnesota, when I decided I was going to go to medical school. I was in this little gifted and talented program. They got some money from the government and took a few of us out of class to investigate uh, careers. And so I was reading about nurses and teachers. And in one of the books, there was a woman who was a physician. And I thought, well, I am not going to be the nurse if I can be the doctor. And I decided in the third grade that I was going to medical school. And in spite of all the bumps and the roadblocks along the way and the detours that I've taken, I, I literally can't think of anything else I'd rather do. It's just, uh, I love it. It's a great life, and it's a really gratifying career. That's a pretty good answer. Most people are like, yeah, I want to, like, run a surf shop or something. <laughs> <laughs> but is travel an option? If yeah. I could just travel on to every beach in the world, that yeah, would be that would good be too. fine, too. Uh, well, I, you know, Dr. Gazelka, I want to thank you for coming into 14 G. I also want to thank you uh, for offering your insights, you know, to the government and to the folks on the Hill. I mean, I know it's a huge resource to them, so... Thanks for coming in. Well, thank you so much for your time.
I want to thank Dr. Gazelka for coming into 14th and G. Um, as you can tell, she's super smart. Opioids is a, is a complex problem. Um, and, you know, it's nice to know that they're super smart people trying to work on it. Okay, so if you're looking for me, my, my email address is wooters at mc-dc.com. And I'll see you next time at the intersection of business and policy, right here at 14th and G.